Very good to be here. And uh, it's been a good excuse for me to um, kind of do some spiritual reading, which I wouldn't have done. <laughs> so it'll be very much a kind of Lexio Divina, really, I hope. And we're getting the sort of sheets of text coming down soon. So we'll um, look at them together and try to uh, see what they mean. And I'm sure we can teach each other a great deal from our own experience of what he's talking about. I just want to have a look at um, a couple of things in the book. Um, the book we're using is Gregory of Nyssa, St. Gregory of Nyssa, The Life of Moses, if you want to make a note of that. And it's available in the, the Classics of Western Spirituality. Okay. I'll leave it on there, you can have a look at it afterwards. I just wanted to look at something. I'll give you a little bit of background to Gregory's life. Um, he lived from 335, roughly, to 395. And he belonged to a third generation of an illustrious Christian family in Cappadocia. He was the third son of ten children. His older sister, Macrina, and brother Basil, later bishop of Caesarea. And his brother Basil was uh, uh, the famous writer who put together the first rule for, for, for monks and monasteries and he traveled all around the Middle East looking at hermits and little communities and he learned their different ways of doing monks <laughs> being monks I should say <laughs> and uh, he, he kind of synthesized it all into a rule and we don't hear of it very much these days but St. Benedict used it extensively in his rule which has become very very famous of course, and uh, a kind of linchpin of Western civilization, really. So he, he was in the big league, I think. <laughs> that was his brother, and his sister was a saint, really, you know, before um, uh, Gregory really got into this religious thing at all. So she was a great, great teacher and uh, influence on him. So to have three saints in one family is <laughs> pretty amazing. <laughs> he was uh, appointed a reader in the church, but Gregory decided to follow his father's career as a teacher. And he apparently um, was very interested in rhetoric and apparently was married. But later on, persuasion from the family and friends led him to retire to his brother Basil's monastery. So I don't know if his wife agreed with that. <laughs> we don't know. Basil secured Gregory's appointment as a bishop of a small town of Nyssa, about 371. And with the explanation that he didn't want his brother to obtain distinction by the um, being a bishop, made bishop, 
but he thought that he would confer distinction on the on the sea itself and on the village itself or town of Nessa. So he was quite a quite a guy, this Gregory. He took a prominent part in the second ecumenical council at Constantinople in 381, which signalled the triumph of Trinitarian uh, theology and orthodoxy. In his later years, Gregory turned to developing a philosophical theology of the spiritual life, which we'll get a flavour of in the readings this evening. Central to these later writings is the life of Moses and it's only just in the last 20 or 30 years been uh, actually fully available in English. And the main theme of the work of the life of Moses is that the virtuous life is a perpetual progress based on the infinite goodness of God. Although Gregory grew up in one of the strong Christian families of Cappadocia, his early life showed very little commitment to the church. This was changed in 372 when at the age of 40 he reluctantly accepted appointment as Bishop of Nyssa. After Basil's death in 379, Gregory became one of the foremost champions against Arianism, or Arianism, I don't know if you've come across that, uh, a heresy anyway. The years following the Council of Constantinople witnessed Gregory's religious leadership in the church in the East, the Byzantine Church, or Orthodox Church as we know it, and the Western Church and Orthodox or Byzantine churches were running parallel, were the same church really, um, for many centuries, up to at least 1050s around that time. But after, um, about the decade before his death, he, he turned against all this kind of fighting heresies and uh, controversy generally, and he turned uh, his attention to the spiritual life uh, and thus the influence of his saintly sister Macrina triumphed at last <laughs> and that's one of the great legacies he's left to us the life of Moses the circumstances um, seem to show that it was in the last decade of his life so it was a work of maturity and we get a clue from this in that he treats envy um, that was directed towards Moses um, from great personal insight and experience. But in the life of Moses there is a mature doctrine of the spiritual life anchored in biblical texts. Perfection according to virtue may be considered the theme not only of the life of Moses, but
but of many of his uh, works. The same complex of ideas recur in all of Gregory's writings. Hence the genuineness, genuineness of the life of Moses has never been really questioned. And it seems to be written, um, he used to write these things um, in response to requests from monks or lay people uh, to answer certain questions of the spiritual life. And this is one such writing that we'll be looking at. I think well, it's not important who was interested really uh, uh, in uh, receiving it. But the life of Moses is written in the form of a treatise dealing with perfection in virtue. It may have been designed for reading aloud in a household of ascetics. There are four sections. The preface or covering letter of introduction, the history of the Bible story of Moses' life, the third section on contemplation or the spiritual meaning of the scriptural narrative which is his main concern and then there's a very short conclusion we need to look also at the philosophical tradition a little bit um, he really was um, influenced by Greek philosophy to quite a great extent in the form of Neoplatonism and he was influenced greatly by um, Aristotle and Plato and we'll see this in the way he uses language and so on and concepts and a way of teasing out what is crucial to the spiritual life Also, there's an interesting insight into the uh, Aristotle connection uh, where Aristotle uses an ethical doctrine of virtue as the mean between um, sort of limits and between opposites sometimes. So it's a way of getting some kind of balance, especially <coughs> In, in the moral, the way we live the moral life. In the second part of the life of Moses, we see that Gregory summarizes the events of Moses' life from the biblical, biblical account in Exodus and Numbers. And in the third part, the spiritual interpretation of the scriptures he refers back to these events as the basis for spiritual lessons. Thus the life of Moses becomes a symbol of the spiritual journey of the soul to God. The figure of Moses <coughs> occupies 
a prominent place in the thinking of Jews and Christians, particularly at this time. Of special importance to Gregory is Philo, who also wrote a two-part Life of Moses. Philo's life, in the manner of the Greek biography, um, which considers that the law does not instruct us how to eat, becomes the basis of an allegorical interpretation, so that allegory was more um, in vogue then. Great, gradually became uh, more spiritually connected and interpreted. And, and more non-literal interpretations too. Gregory looks not only at the Alexandrian tradition, but also to certain common Christian interpretations of the Old Testament, particularly with reference to Christ, the Church, and so on. The Latin Fathers used the life of Moses very extensively, although they, they do discuss very different life events than does Gregory. Where they do mention the same events, they are concerned more with practical moral questions. Then we'll move on now, if there aren't any questions about that. Uh, to the qualities of the spiritual life. Gregory's spiritual theology has come in for a great attention in recent years. The life of Moses is a particularly important formulation of his Christian spirituality. Gregory calls attention to those features of Moses' life which may be considered a withdrawal from active involvement in the affairs of men. In Midian, he lived alone in the mountains, away from the turmoil of the marketplace. And on Sinai, leaving the people behind, he boldly approached the very darkness itself. Gregory encourages the solitary life or life among those of like disposition and mind, but there is still the return to society for service. The Moses who had known the discipline of the desert gained the hearing of the people, and he who had been instructed by God in the thick darkness went down to his people to share with them the marvels that he had seen. Practical philosophy must be joined to contemplative philosophy. Asceticism <coughs> is emphasized. The life of virtue demands austerity and intensity. Asceticism is a greater philosophy than the learning of all the Egyptians, he said. Gregory interprets the coverings of the tabernacle as the mortification of the sinful flesh and the ascetic way of life, 
and he considers asceticism the adornment of the church. Mainly these techniques and trainings were for the control of the passions and is a theme often repeated in the work. For example, Gregory affirms that it is impossible to flee the Egyptian life except by destroying utterly the first birth of evil. For when he slays the beginning, he destroys at the same time what follows after it. Again, to the washing of garments and the keeping of animals away from the mountain in preparation for the Sinai Theophany, he gives the moral interpretation of keeping body and soul stainless and keeping sense perception under control in the pursuit of this meaning of virtue between the mean between opposites and extremes. On the positive side, the two parts of religious virtue are the knowledge of God and right conduct. The knowledge of God and right conduct. The virtues of faith, hope and a good conscience receive special stress. In spite of this general trend of the treatise, the tendency of recent studies has been to see in the life of Moses the crowning work of Gregory's mysticism. In view of the lack of precision with which the word mysticism is frequently used and of Gregory's close ties with the philosophical development, we have preferred to speak of his spirituality. There are passages, notably the treatment of Moses on Sinai, that have a mystical ring about them. But Gregory's prevailing concern is with the moral virtues and the qualities of the soul that would attain to God. The close of the third section expresses Gregory's concern. For he who has truly come to be in the image of God and who has in no way turned aside from the divine character bears in himself its distinguishing marks and shows in all things his conformity of the archetype. He beautifies his own soul with what is incorruptible, unchangeable, and shares in no evil at all. The climax of Gregory's spirituality is to follow God. The one who waits upon the divine voice and prays that he might follow behind is the true servant of God. 
It is notable that the treatise says little about specific disciplines like prayer, meditation, listening to scripture as a way to God. The concern is with moral in the broad sense qualities. At several places in the treatise Gregory alludes to points that form part of the general theological framework of his spiritual doctrine. Conversion restores man's capacity to reflect on the divine nature. There is an incessant transformation into the likeness of God as man stretches out with the divine infinity and there is an ever greater participation in God as a journey. Thus we come to the most distinctive part of the life of Moses and the theme that holds the whole work together the idea of eternal progress. Gregory went on to make progress himself perfection. Progress itself as a form of perfection. This theme of eternal progress is announced in the preface in section 1. The same language is used of the infinity of God. How then would one arrive at the sought-for boundary where he can find no boundary of God? The one limit of perfection is the fact that it has no limit. It's an ongoing journey into God. In fact, if you look at the life of Moses in detail, there's always another step higher that he has to go to. <laughs> Participation in virtue opens and expands the capacity for more virtue. The flesh can know fullness and satiety, <laughs> but the spirit cannot. This perpetual growth does not imply a lack of satisfaction, although one's desire is increased the more with each participation in God. This experience, he says, is unlike the recurrence of desires for physical things. As he nears the end, Gregory once more repeats that the only perfection available to mankind in this life is to be found in progress towards perfection, the continual development of life to what is better is the soul's way to perfection. The stages of Moses' life 
are a pattern not so much in their order as in their constant going on to new things. Origen also wrote that his works are governed by the omnipresent possibility of temptation and sin, a kind of negative uh, reaction, while Gregory is concerned almost exclusively with the sinless life of the saved and blessed, so looking on the positive side of that spiritual journey. Gregory's had quite an influence um, on the Hesychast tradition. Um, particularly in the eastern part of the church. And uh, Macarius was one particularly who used his um, ideas and developed a way of life using solitude and uh, a spirituality of stillness. Just a few words about um, the sort of the, the crux of the whole treatise, really, and then we'll look at um, some of the texts themselves. So you've done very well not to go to sleep so far. So. <laughs> Well done. Um, so this is just a little introduction, if you like, to the next section. And do you want to stand up after this or now? Do feel free. In three sections, in three major sections, really, and these are the most important passages in the book, Gregory develops his doctrine of God. The burning bush is the first one. The second is the revelation of the law on Sinai. And the third one we'll be looking at is Moses' request to see God. God is true being for he is the only self-subsisting nature. On him all else depends for existence. God is all-sufficient. By participation in him, other things have being. The infinite God is invisible and incomprehensible. Since he transcends all cognitive thought, and representation. He is ultimately unknowable, being beyond all sense, knowledge and intellectual concepts. The divine nature has no boundary. Man's partial experience of God comes in a constantly following him. To see God is to know him as unknowable. To follow God 
wherever he might lead, is to behold God. This truly is the vision of God, never to be satisfied in the desire to see him. <laughs> it's a strange paradox, sounds like Eckhart at times. <laughs> That's a good place to end the introduction anyway. <laughs>